I need to know everything, who and the what and the where, I need everything. Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am not your host, PTF. He's, he's yelling at me about YouTube. This guy, PTF, he's YouTube guy. I'm just kidding. No, YouTube's been good. Hopefully you've been checking it out. I am your host, Jonathan Kinchin, and uh, I'm excited to be back. I was gone for a week or so. You probably didn't even miss me. You should have. Well, I hope you missed me. But anyways, I'm back now. And uh, I'm going to jump right into it. I'm going to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. I'm going to thank Sheikh Fahad. I'm going to thank the team um, in the uh, Claret and Gold. Looking forward to uh, what they've got in store. And uh, we're going to jump into this Rebel Stakes this weekend. And our friend Matt Dinnerman, who, who is our guest this week, is going to be calling his first Rebel uh, in the biggest race of his career that he's called. He talks a little bit about... Uh, the races that he's called, but this is a $1.25 million Kentucky Derby prep. So, you know, it's a little bit of a big deal for my man, Matt Dinnerman and his duck collection that we're going to talk about, but it was an exciting conversation. I'm going to jump right into it. You know, usually I hit you with these long intros, but uh, I'm not going to hit you with that now. Matt Dinnerman. Matt, what's going on? I I, I hear your voice all the time (laughs) because you're in my ear. I'll tell you about that in a second. Uh, How you been doing? I've been doing well, Jonathan. How are you doing? I'm good. So when I'm not, I know you're not paying attention because you're worried about uh, 12 to 14 four-legged animals running in a circle. But, you know, us having, us being America's Day at the Races, having Oaklawn on the show, I, I when I'm not on track, I'm, I'm in Saratoga or in Austin and I'm remote and I have an IFB in my ear as I walk around the house doing chores in between my hits. So I always hear your voice. Um, this feels very familiar to me. It's like, I'm, I'm like the, uh, talking person in the sky, but only it's in your ear in a way. <laughs> sort of. I, when I was a little kid, it was like, who's that person telling us about what's going on during the race? I was like mesmerized with the whole announcer and his voice and Trevor Denman at the time where I grew up in Del Mar. So, I can, uh, I, I'm glad to hear that you don't put me on mute though, Jonathan. That's a good thing. I, you know, I'm actually the opposite of that. And I, I've told, you know, I have a couple of friends that are uh, announcers, Frank Miramati, Travis Stone. Um, and I've always, and I'm sure there's someone else I'm forgetting. So sorry if I forgot you, but I have always been a person where I go somewhere. I want to hear the race call. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if it's like because of the generation in which I fell in love with the game was Trevor Denman and Tom Durkin. And so like I, I, I just associate races with that. I actually did a I do this work for Lane's Inn and I did a video this week where I popped in a call of twirling candy because of I was doing Top Connor, the horse that won at Gulfstream and his dad twirling candy. And I did uh, twirling candy's Malibu and I got to hear, hear Trevor Denman. And I haven't heard him in a long time. And it's like, oh. It's just so nostalgic. Right. That's what I was thinking, the word nostalgic. I mean, you grow up with certain voices no matter what the sport is. And I would say that it's one of these weird deals when you have a really good announcer, you enjoy that announcer, and you basically listen, and and you, you don't think about it as much as if maybe you hear somebody that maybe for whatever reason they're not your cup of tea and then you start thinking about, wow, like who the announcer is and how, what kind of quality work they do really does have an impact on the experience, you know? So you guys are like students of the game. So I'm sure you guys remember a lot of the specifics of calls and, and the, the, the real technical aspects of them. But for me, it's like I remember all of my favorite races and I can think about words in the call that like really stick out, right? It's like uh, Rachel Alexandra the Great and she did it and – or uh, she, you know, super Philly, you bet, you know, I just, all these things I can remember from the calls that, that really stand out. And I think that's where the art form comes in when you think about a race car and the technical side of it, which like you said, most people don't think about the technical side of it, like Travis or Frank or anybody else uh, or myself. But uh, when you're able to describe a moment and paint that picture through words and make it memorable for somebody, then that's when you've really become an artist in this profession. And I think that when you look at these different races and you analyze 
the highest level to the lowest level, you come to realize when interacting with people that just because there's a race that's a 12-5 claimer doesn't mean it's not important to somebody. Everybody thinks about the grade ones and the grade one calls and, you know, Beholder and Songbird coming down the stretch and the announcer having to give a great call for a race like that. But sometimes people don't always think about maybe that 12-5 claimer that won for an owner who also bred the horse into them that was really special to them, what you said or how you said it, or helped make that experience memorable for that person. So that's why I think as an announcer, it's also really important to do the best you can and not mail it in at all during any race, always do the best you can and trust your process and keep, keep working on the things that you need to do to make sure that you give a good call, no matter what level race it is. Well, you know, this was, you know, strategic to have you this week uh, ahead of what we talked about privately as your as the biggest race call of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll get to the Rebel. Sure. Um, and uh, I would imagine your first, uh, you know, greater than a million dollar race, you know, Derby Trail, there's a lot to it. But prior to this race, what's the one that kind of stands out to you as like one of your most like, not not your greatest calls, but your most important, kind of the biggest stage, the most pressure you felt prior to this one. I think my first Long Acres mile at Emerald Downs, there was a lot of pressure. It was my first graded stake. The Long Acres mile in Auburn, Washington at Emerald Downs in the state of Washington, that's like their Kentucky Derby. So no, it's not a $3 million Kentucky Derby. There's not 20 horses in the gate. There's 12, but the pressure feels the same as a grade one, very, very high caliber race. So to be able to get that out of the way, it was a giant weight off my shoulders. And I remember the winning horse striker PhD was a big time fan favorite there. He had his Zenyatta type running style. So that I think really uh, was a keynote in my career to advance me to be able to call bigger races and to experience the pressure of calling a big race. I think it was a, a, a big time, uh, for lack of a better term, I guess you could say, I, I guess you could say it's a, it was a good experience, Jonathan. It was a really good experience to call that first big race. Um, and then, you know, I think about the three-year-old races at Oakland that I've already called the Southwest and the Smarty Jones. I mean, these races have big history. They have derby implications and, I remember calling the El Camino Real Derby for quite a few years at Golden Gate and Ron Bauer, who won that race, got a free berth into the Preakness, and he went on and won the Preakness. So that was a memorable call. It wasn't as much pressure as maybe my first Long Acres Mile or a couple of these three-year-old races here at Oaklawn, but um, definitely that mile stood out to me, and it will always stand out to me. You, you mentioned Ron Bauer, and it's funny. Um, when he won, I, I, I have a great relationship with Michael McCarthy. He's always been super nice to me, and he's he's one of my favorite personalities in racing, which I think some people might be surprised by. He seems and comes off very dry, but he's absolutely hilarious. One of the funniest guys in racing, and you just can't see it. So I was, I was very happy when he won the Preakness with Ron Bauer. But since then... Uh, which we'll get to Italian food. My my <laughs> my wife, who's Italian, who owns an Italian restaurant in Saratoga, she introduced. She's kind of elevated my food and wine a little bit. Rombauer is absolutely a delicious white wine. It's it's outstanding, and I didn't even know that when I was rooting for this horse as he was coming down the middle of the stretch uh, in the Preakness. So Rombauer close to both of our hearts. Yeah, and I like wine, so that makes two of us, Jonathan. And Ron Bauer is certainly a horse that when you call a horse like that, no matter what horse, what level, just a horse that's memorable to you as an announcer for whatever reason, they're really holding a special place in your heart. I mean, if I ever got to meet him, it'd probably be one of the coolest experiences ever for me. I mean, I met the first horse I ever called on a microphone who won Coach Royal, and that was one of my most favorite meetings with a horse ever. And I think that was, what, a 12-5 claimer or something like that at Emerald. So um, these horses, I'm telling you, not only is it fun to call them, but when it's a special call for an announcer, they do hold a special place in your heart for pretty much your whole life. You know, it's funny that you say that because I, I've always gotten that impression. We haven't got to spend a lot of time together. We've mm-hmm. talked in, in passing and things, but I've always gotten the impression from you 
that you deeply, deeply love the animal. And by hearing you say that, when you said that, I got, you know, if I got to meet Ron Bauer as if he was like the president of the United States, right. I think it says a lot about how much it is that you care about the animal because I hear it in your calls as well. Well, I appreciate that. And the reason I got involved in racing was for the love of the animal. That's how I really was mesmerized by the whole sport, which was going to the races with my dad when I was a youngster and seeing these magnificent animals and watching how fast they were going and how athletic they were and the excitement of the racing. Um, of course, you learn that the game is multifaceted. We've got agriculture, horses. You've also, of course, have betting, gambling, gaming, hospitality, all those things mixed into the game. But um, when you're able to love the horses, I think it puts an extra layer of satisfaction when you're able to call a good race and describe the race as well, or just be an ambassador for the sport, knowing that you're not only an ambassador for fans and people, but also for the horses as well. So um, I like going to the backstretch. I like meeting horses. I don't like to get too close to them in the sense that I don't want to be biased when I'm calling races. I don't want my heart to be broken when I'm calling a race unless if it calls for it. I, I think Zenyatta, when she lost and Trevor's call, for example, that was sort of a heartbreaking tone that called for the scenario that she wasn't able to win in the Breeders' Cup. Um, so things like that are acceptable. But I do like to go back to the barns and feed them peppermints. And they're really amazing animals. They're my favorite animals on this planet. And, you know, they are the reason that we all have what we have is because of these animals. No, you're 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 a hundred percent correct about that. Um, so you you talked a little bit about the the, the start your your journey into racing and mm-hmm. uh, going to the track with your father, which is you know ninety percent of us. I think it's it's father or grandfather, right? Is is what what yeah. kind of brought us to the, to the track, San Diego. Um, and I was surprised. I when you know just kind of getting ready for this. I don't do like extensive research, but just a couple of things here and there. Uh, I was surprised that I'd never had heard that you had worked for John Sadler before. So, be- leading up to the John Sadler thing, what was your life with racing? And then tell me about your life after the John Sadler experience. When I was about ten or eleven, my dad took me to the races for the first time. I grew up in Exit South of Del Mar, so what a convenient way to, uh, rather, excuse me, what a convenient place to be that <laughs> to be an exit south of Del Mar and eventually we met a gal named Gail Van Leer who's a bloodstock agent and she actually lived in our gated community and she had learned that by meeting my dad he enjoyed the races he was taking his young son to the races he really loved going to the races and seeing the horses and watching the people at Del Mar so Gail actually took my dad and I quite a few trips she took us to the backstretch to show us around, pet the horses that she had uh, connections with. And I just really wanted to learn more about this game. And the more I was around it and exposed to it, the more I wanted to really dig in my heels and learn more about what this was all about. So when I was 15 years old, I got a work permit and I started walking hots for John Sadler. And Gail had got me that job. She had talked to him. He said, bring him here. Let's give him a start in his career here in racing. Let's show him the horses. And it was a great experience. And I could have gone for one, two summers, but I ended up going back for four summers because I loved it so much. And I remember my dad, it was a whole family thing. My dad would wake up at four 30 the first year, every morning to take me to the backstretch and drive me there because I didn't have a driver's license. I only had a a permit when I was 15. So where I could drive with an adult. So Uh, My mom was all for it. My dad loved it. They both thought it was a great job to really learn not only about horse racing, but about life and hard work and working your way up the ladder. And it was a great experience. So that was my sort of background leading up to the job, my first job. And, and, and tell me about the job. Like, did you, I mean, I'm, I, I can tell by your voice and, and, and by, by the, the, you know, saying, I like to go to the backside and anyone who's ever spent any time back there that has a heart, even a little bit of a heart has an unbelievable appreciation for what the, the backstretch employees do for this game and for these animals. Well, it's just really, uh, it's really an amazing place because you go back there and just so many things are going on. I mean, 
when when you're at the races, especially just the average Joe, you see the horses show up and they run. And most people don't think, okay, what kind of prep work does it take? I'm sure there's prep work back there. I'm sure they're doing something, but what is it exactly that goes into it? And the answer is there's a lot that goes into it. I mean, I would be walking these horses. My legs would be absolutely exhausted. I never took naps until I started becoming a hot walker. Then I'd take naps after every morning. I'd get home at 10.30 a.m., start at 5, but I'd get home at 10.30 a.m. and I'd fall asleep. It's a very demanding job, a very, uh, very high-stress job in the sense that you're working with these very nice animals and you're making sure that they are taken care of. You're making sure that they're behaving themselves to make sure that they're healthy. And it's constant movement. You're always moving. You're always doing something. I always was taught there, hey, if you're not walking a horse, get a rake, rake the shed row. You know, there were times where we had a pile of horse manure and my job was to shovel all of it to another pile. I mean, all of these things, we were just working, working constantly. Uh, And you just really find a love and appreciation for the horses and the people that work with them because it's such a hard job. The hours are long, early, the pay isn't great. And people every day wake up and they're there for the horses. That's why they're there. And when I worked for John, one of the grooms there, his name's Victor Carpio. He groomed a lot of John's best horses. He groomed Sydney's Candy, Switch, some of the best horses that John had. And on my first day, Victor, who was sort of my teacher, in the barn, he basically told me, if you're not here for the horses first, then you can leave and go find something else to do. Because here, the only people that work in this barn are for the horses first. And that really stuck with me. Do you find yourself, and, and, and luckily, well, I guess not, I want to say luckily, because everyone loved to call it Del Mar or Santa Anita or whatever, but I'm sure you did it a few times at, at Golden Gate. You talk about trying to, to protect yourself from, from having a bias. Did you, did you find yourself a little connected to John Sadler's barn when he would ship up to Golden Gate? I actually, I felt the connection, but in terms of handicapping, I, I think I was very fair in that regard. But um, I think once I called his first winner, it was a little bit easier. When I first got to Golden Gate and he had a few horses, I really wanted to be able to call a John Sadler winner. And once that happened, I, and to be honest with you, I don't remember exactly who it was who was my first John Sadler winner, but um, being able to call a race for John in the stable and also knowing that a lot of the people I worked with in the past were watching that because a lot of people work for John for a long time. They're there for a while. John treats his help really well. And to be able to call that winner, the first winner, and just to be able to call John Sadler horses, Every time it really made me think about how things have really come full circle and how proud I was to be a part of something that special and how privileged I was to be able to work in an environment like that where really you have top quality horses and you also have some of the lower level horses along the way. We also had uh, talent levels of from one side of the spectrum to the other and being able to learn and understand how this all went down and being able to be a better industry employee because of it. Just very special. Your, your first job was Emerald Downs. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, I don't know if it's changed since then. I, I, but are you, are you still the youngest race caller when you started? I was the youngest race caller when I started, I was 22 um, not sure if there's an official person who's under 31 in thoroughbred racing that's calling in any tracks. I don't know the answer to that. I, I can't think of anybody, uh, but definitely one of the youngest. So it's, it's been quite the interesting ride in that respect for a lot of reasons, actually. So how, so when you were, when you were 22 years old, what would you do? Did you get on word and throw together a resume and, and, send a tape over? How how did you get the job at Emerald Downs? So I was working in the press box at Del Mar after working for John for four summers. I worked in the press box for two summers. And the first year I was in there, I always knew that announcing was something I wanted to do. I also really wanted to do television and handicapping, what you're doing. And I just kept going back to, wow, being at the track every day, calling the horses, I'm so excited when I hear a good call. Wouldn't that be fun to be able to be the person to call that race and make other people excited? I mean, that's that's really interesting. So 
my first year, I got a pair of binoculars on holiday in the December month of Christmas and Hanukkah. I celebrate both holidays. And my uncle and aunt actually bought me these binoculars, which, by the way, I still use to this day. I've only called races with these binoculars. And I would go into an empty booth in the press box because the press box has quite a few different rooms in there that face the track. And a couple of them were not occupied. So I would go in there, take my recorder, practice calling the races with the binoculars and then listen back. And I do as many races as I could. I really became obsessed over it. I, every race I wanted to be in that room calling and practicing. And eventually what happened was I had these tapes and Emerald put out a press release saying, we're looking for an experienced race caller. And at the time, Trevor, or rather Tom Durkin, he had just retired from New York. And this was when the musical shares of announcers started happening. Tom Durkin retires. Larry Colmas goes to New York and people just start moving around. And I said, you know, I told my dad, I don't have the experience that Emerald is looking for, but I need to put my name out there or else who knows when's the next opportunity to come around. So I sent them a resume. I wrote up a resume. I sent them a couple tapes and the next day they asked me to audition. And uh, it's really an amazing story. They called me while I was practicing calling races at Santa Anita because I went to Chapman University, which is about 45, 50 minutes from Santa Anita. I'd go there. And for my internship, Chapman let me practice calling races because they knew it was something I wanted to do. So that was my senior internship. On the way home, I got a call from Sophia McKee, the marketing director. She wanted me to fly up to Emerald the next morning and call races, two races. And I was scared out of my mind, but I did it and I got the job. And it was it was mind boggling, really. <laughs> it was crazy. How, how were how were those two calls? I think they went well given my experience, but I was super nervous. That that along with the Long Acres Mile, those two calls were the highest pressure race calls I've ever made because they were actually on TVG, now known as FanDuel. So nobody other than a few people had heard me call a race and everybody knew I was going up there. So there were a lot of people paying attention. I knew making a first impression was important, making a good one. And the first race, there was just horses all over the place, horses switching positions. It was a really hard race to call, even though there were only six horses in it, but I did it. And then the second race, I felt a lot more comfortable. And uh, the second one went really well. And I just left there. I still left Jonathan thinking that I wasn't going to get the job. I'm like, they're just trying to be nice. They're just trying to give me a shot to show my stuff here, but they're not actually going to give me this job. And then the next day on mother's day, I got offered the job. So that was a good mother's day present for my mom. Oh, thank God you didn't have to wait either. That's the worst. Like when you do something, you got to wait four or five days, six days, you got to stew in it. Wonder if they liked me. Did they hate me? That's tough. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about, so then golden gate, how, how did golden gate come about? When I was at Golden Gate the first year, I was the paddock analyst. So there's a common theme here in all the jobs I've gotten, which is make your own, make your own luck. And at the time, I had Emerald for half the year, but I didn't have another gig at the time. So I was sort of talking it over with my dad and um, Joe Morris, who at the time was running the Southern California Racing Operation title, he was running Southern California and Northern California. I think they called it wet, the West Coast Operations Manager or something like that. He was in charge of the West Coast product for the Stronic Group. And I messaged him and said, hey, you know, I don't have anything going on the second half of the year. I'd like to have some work in television, handicapping, paddock analysis. I noticed that you don't have a paddock person at Golden Gate. Would you be interested if I could come up there and be the paddock person and it took him a couple days to reply. And then he wrote back, you know, we've been waiting for the right person for something like this, but you would be perfect. So come on up here on this date. It was in a few weeks in mid October. He said, come up up here on this date and we'll put you in a hotel up here and uh, we'll, we'll get you started. We'll, we'll get you paid and everything situated. So I made my way up there for a year and was the paddock analyst which was great. I had a great time. And that's where I learned my on-air experience, along with doing a few pre-race shows with Joe Withy at Emerald. But most of my TV appearances, handicapping on-air, giving picks, all came, the vast majority of it came through that experience being a paddock analyst at Golden Gate. And then the next year, Frank Miramati left Golden Gate 
to take the aqueduct gig and David Duggan, who was the general manager by that time, he came up to me and asked me if I wanted to be the announcer there full time year round. And I couldn't pass it up. It was a great opportunity. And I know David had a lot of applicants, not even in the US, but all over the world that applied for Golden Gate. And at the end of the day, he stuck with me. So I'm very thankful to David and the Stronic group and the team there first racing that gave me a shot because uh, they could have gone with some very experienced, good people, but they stuck with the young gun. And I thought it was a great six years of calling there. So I'm curious on your feelings just about what 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 appears to be, you know, the 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 kind of the the, the fate of Golden Gate. And I say that because as someone, like, I hit a big bet one time. When I say a big bet, I mean I I, I won five hundred dollars when I was in college at a racetrack <laughs> called uh, Maynard Downs. Wow. And when it closed, it broke my heart to a certain extent. Right. Where, where, where's your emotions in terms of what, what, what it seems could be the future for Golden Gate? Somber would be my emotions. I, I think there's a mix of emotions. There's sadness. I have gone through the stages of loss with Golden Gate's closure. I, I don't think I've got to the acceptance level yet, um, but I've gone through these stages. I remember one night, I was just lying in my bed and I had already gotten the Oakland job at that point. And I just started bawling. I just started crying. And I, to, to this moment, I don't know why it hit me, but it did. And it's sad because there are so many people that are affected by this. I was there for six, seven years and put my heart and soul and my life into this racetrack and doing the best I could to give the experience uh, a positive one to the fans. It, It just a little bit, of extra help. If I could be of a little extra help to make somebody's experience at Golden Gate positive, I worked my tail off to do that. And I hope that I was able to do that for people. Um, but that's just a, a small thing because you think about trainers and owners and breeders and the people on the front side that have worked there on the backside for years and decades. And this is their life and it's taken away. It's, it's very sad and disappointing. And I've felt angry as well. I felt all these negative emotions and, um, there is a level of heartbreak that I've felt and golden gate, even when it goes away, it's going to always be special to me because of what kind of opportunities I was given there and the people I met. Um, and it's a community. So like any other racetrack, you go to a racetrack, you're part of the community and you celebrate the highs and you comfort people and do the best you can at the lowest of lows. And this is definitely an all time low and it's very sad and very disappointing. And I'm, I'm very sad over it. And I'm very, uh, very concerned as well because the future that there's no telling what's going to happen in the future, good or bad. So uh, mixed emotions. And when people bring it up, I, I have not accepted the fact that golden gate is closing. I have not gotten to the last stage yet. Well, uh, uh, a, a, a higher moment in, in, in your life and your career is, you know, I, I think that there's a, a handful. When I think of racing, I, I think of I think of Southern California, San Anita Del Mar. I think mm-hmm. of Florida, you know, with Gulfstream and Tampa. I think of uh, Fairgrounds, you know, Churchill, Keeneland, Naira. And then I think of Oakland Park as well as like that, 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 that chunk of serious racetracks that we need, that matter, that can't go away. And you are the now the race caller at Oaklawn Park. How did that job come about? And, and then once you'd say how that job came about, I want to let you transition right into what is that community like? What do you, because I, I know how they embrace their racing and I would imagine they'll embrace their race announcer as well. It's a pretty amazing place here. I mean, I got this job because I did apply for it. Um, when Golden Gate had announced that there was going to be closure of the track in June of 2020, well, at the time it was December of 2023, but they extended it to June 2024. Nonetheless, when they announced that Golden Gate would close, I knew that the Oakland job was still available and it took me 24 hours to decide what I wanted to do. You know, let me sleep on it. This was literally a day or two after 
they had announced Golden Gate was closing. So I was still in a lot of shock and confusion and didn't know what the heck was going on because you're trying to process everything. And uh, Oakland was available and I applied for the job and I called a couple people here and I said, you know, I know that you're very late in this process, but I really would love to at least send you my resume and send you a couple raise calls. And if you like it, give me a shot. I, I, I'd really appreciate you just looking at my resume. So I sent it over and about a week later, they called me and they asked to be interviewed if they could fly me out for an interview. And that took a few weeks. And in mid-August, I flew out here for a day and interviewed, spent all day here. And it went really well. And I remember leaving the interview feeling and telling my parents, my mom and my dad, you know, I've done everything I can. If somebody else gets the job, it is what it is. I would love this job. I love this place. Just being here for a day. But we'll see. You know, there are other good candidates involved. And I was very lucky and just absolutely blown away and excited and all these different emotions, thrilled, stoked, anything you want to call it. I was felt that way when I got a call about a month later saying, we're interested in you being our guy. And since I've come here, it's just been a fantastic time. I've really fallen in love with the town. And the people here, they just love their racing. It's like Saratoga, and everybody says it. You go around town, people are looking at the form, they're talking about their bets. It's really just amazing. And I've had a face full of salad in my mouth and people tap me on the shoulder at restaurants and say, you're Matt Dinnerman, you're the announcer. And, you know, we really like your work or man, you had a good pick here. What did you think of this race? So it's really cool to be in a community where people embrace racing and love it so much. And I think it's just really a team effort. You've got the horsemen and the management that by all means, they, they get a, along as well as any racing jurisdiction in the country, the local politicians, the state politicians, they all support it. You know, Louis Sella and the Sella family have been uh, instrumental in making Oakland the way it is today and the culture it is today. And it's, I'm still in the honeymoon phase for sure, but it's just been a, a delightful time. And it's a really special place for a racing person. Before we get to the rebel, tell me a little bit about your process, right? I mean, I, I think that you know, we've all seen the documentaries of, of, of uh, you know, the, the YouTube videos or the quick little cuts on HRTV or TVG or, or FanDuel or, or even, the, you know, the America's Day at the Races or Saratoga Live. We've seen, you know, how Frank does it. We've seen how Tom Durkin does it. We've seen how, you know, Trevor does it. Travis does it. How do you do it? What, what's your process? I'm sure you picked up a lot of things from them, but I'm sure you have your own kind of things. How do you get ready for a race? What's your uh, preparation like? It's a great question to ask any announcer, Jonathan, because it's all a trial and error type of deal when you're starting out. You're doing things that work. You find things that don't work and say, that doesn't work for me. And there's no right or wrong way to do it as long as you get it done, really. So for me, what works best for me is a day before the race card. So if we run on Friday, I'm going to look at Thursday. On Thursday, I'm going to look at Friday's. On Saturday race cards, Friday during the races, in between races, I'm looking at Saturdays. So I'm always going 24 hours in advance. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself for the most part. Um, and what I end up doing is just reading the form and looking at things that maybe I can note in a race call, looking at the horses. Because when you think about memory, we don't think about our memories as humans in our brain and how much memory and how many things we remember. It's incredible, really. And I believe that even though I'm not trying to, quote, memorize, unquote, the horses like people may think I am and like looking at silks, which I'll talk about in a second, there is this um, sort of my brain is marinating this information and it's not fully sunken in. But when they do come on the track, I'll be able to say, oh, yeah, this is this horse. I looked at this horse in the form yesterday and the yada, 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 you know, this is what I saw. So after I look at the form and all the races, let it marinate in my brain for a day. And then I go one race at a time. And I've basically programmed my brain to where you memorize the jockey silks. If the silks look similar, you find other things, blinkers, the color of the horse, uh, other equipment, things to distinguish each horse. Uh, but mainly I'm looking at the jockey silks. And then 30 minutes later, it's rinse and repeat. It's the same thing because sometimes you see certain owners that have the same silks four or five, even six times a day. And you got to 
forget about the horse that ran 30 minutes ago and get to the next one. And if race four, you ask me who won the second race, I actually might not be able to tell you because I'm so focused one race at a time. And that's how I memorize and prepare. So give me your, cause you know, I've like hanging out in the booth with, 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 with announcers. It's, it's interesting to watch their process. And, um, I probably spent the most time watching Travis do what he does. So tell me when you read the prices from race two and you have 30 minutes, what do those 30 minutes look like after you read the prices from race two until they pop away from the gate in race three? So if I don't have a paddock hit every once in a while, I'll go on air and give a paddock hit, but let's just say, you know, 85% of the time I don't have a paddock hit. 80 to 85% of the time. So let's just say I don't have one. So this is majority of the time. I will go back to my desk and I'll be looking at the next day's races, whatever race I'm on. I'm not even thinking about our race just yet. I'm, I'm preparing for the next day. And I don't start memorizing until they get a rider's up call. Then I go back and I'm putting that work away until between races for the next race. And once they come on the track, I start memorizing and looking at them. And I do have my racing form for the day in front of me with the binoculars. So sometimes I'll look in the form and it'll remind me about a horse or I can't memorize a horse. And I look in the form and I'll say, oh, okay, this is this horse. And this is why this is who's riding. This is who's training. And that's another thing too. just a side note is it's more than just memorizing horses. It's memorizing who the rider is. And when you're watching a race, seeing how riders ride and know based on their, their form, who's on who. And you know, there's a lot of memorization going on with not just the horses, but their running styles and the connections and stats and all that stuff. But I go one at a time. You know, if there's a horse, uh, number one is green silks. I'm going to say his name, green silks horse. And then the second horse has blue silks. I'm going to say blue silks horse. And then I'm going to go back to green silks horse. And then the third one's got red silks. So I'm going to go red, blue, green. And, and just keep doing it until I have all of them. And even if I don't 100% have all of them, what I like to do is take two or three minutes off because what it does is it helps, again, marinate that memorization and the horses in my brain. And believe it or not, there have been times where I say a horse a few times, I don't quite remember them. I take two or three minutes off and I co- come back and I remember who they are because it's my brain has let it sunk in that information. It's It's quite a process. And then... Uh, you know, I think that going to the gate when they're lined up and walking to the gate, I look at them one last time, announcing them going into the gate is a good way to finally finish off that memorization process. And then they're off and running. Do you, you know, I, I know Tom and, 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 um, and Travis, both, they do that little, like that little, like, uh, marker hanger thing around the neck, look in front of them thing. Do you do the marker thing or no? I don't color. I don't use markers. I've tried it. It just doesn't work for me. I'm much more of a visual learner. So when I see something, it's easier for me and my brain to memorize as opposed to looking at something, seeing, oh, red silks, and then coloring in red silks next to the program. For whatever reason, that doesn't help me memorize. I need to just visualize and visualize and see. And that's another thing that's interesting is that our brains are all different. So Somebody like Travis, who's a very accomplished announcer, and he he is very accurate and he doesn't make mistakes much at all. He's very good with his memorization. So he has found something that works for him. Tom Durkin has found a way that works for him. And for me, I've found a little different way, but it still works. And and that's the creativity of this is there, there's different things that different guys do. And that's what makes it so interesting. What's your what's your nightmare at Oakland Park? What, what's what's the what's the. What's the hardest when you look in the when you see the entries? Ah, damn it! What is it? Twelve horses in a in a dirt sprint? Is it a is the, what 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 what's like? Ah, this is tough. Well, you know the field size. I, I guess the field size isn't as much of an issue, really, because I always say if you can call eight, you can call ten, and if you can call two extras of ten, you can call two extras of twelve. I would say. One of my worst nightmares at Oaklawn would be the first finish line if I forget they're finishing there. Because going a mile here at Oaklawn, they start and end at the 16th pole. Going a mile and a 16th, mile and an eighth Arkansas Derby, they're going to end at the regular finish line. Five and a half, six furlongs, they end at the regular finish line. And 
my nightmare would be calling a, especially a big race, for example, and forgetting that the 16th marker going a mile is where they end and calling the horses a 16th of a mile after the gallop out. That would be a, a nightmare for me. <laughs> my, my favorite thing to do is go to a racetrack with, with someone who knows racing, but not fully. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife's a great example and pointing out that when they're going a th- in a three turn race saying, listen, be very quiet and you'll hear someone cheer the first time they pass the wire right and you know that those are the idiots here (laughs) (laughs) and then they'll they'll turn to their friend and say i won i won the exact and they don't know they got a mile to go (laughs) (laughs) you got you got you got a little bit longer to go you got a little bit longer to go um now so that's your everyday process yeah uh is there a big race process Have, have you because the entries are out have you it's it's wednesday when we recorded this have you started doing work on the Rebel? Because you said that it's the biggest race you've called. Have you started your work there? Or are you treating it like any other race? Well, I try to treat it like any other race. I look at the Rebel because I know people are going to ask. I will handicap in advance, and I've done that this week on big weekends just because I like to have everything finished. So by race day, I'm not doing things in between races. I'm pacing myself. Especially like a Rebel Day. I'm sure Travis will tell you these big, you know, Derby Day, for example, these big days in Kentucky. You know, it's a long day and you got to pace yourself. Um, But the thing about the Rebel and these big races is, at least for me, memorizing isn't nearly as difficult because you know the horses, you look at the nominations, you look at the field, you hear everybody talking about it. So you know who's who, you know what they're going to come out in, what silks they're going to come out in. So, Actually, with these big races, I would say memorizing is the absolute easiest part. It's dealing with the pressure. And I'm going to treat this like any other race in terms of, you know, looking at the race the way I would look at any other race. Um, You know, I'm not going to be memorizing them in the paddock. I'm going to do the same pre-race stuff I always do and, and just take it. Hey, it's another race where there's a big field and they're running around in a circle. That's how I look at it. So yes, there is pressure. It's not that you're not going to feel pressure, but you have to learn how to deal with that pressure and use it to make your work good. Use that adrenaline to do a good job. So I have looked at the rebel. I've looked at the field, but I haven't necessarily done anything different, especially come race day. I won't be doing anything different when there's race three going on or race five or even race 10 before the 11th race rebel. I'm not going to be thinking about the rebel until it's time to think about the rebel. Yeah. I mean, I, that, that, that makes sense to me, right? I, I mm-hmm. think that if you start treating it, treating it any differently, I, I think there's certain things you can do differently, Sure, right? but if you start treating it too much differently, it's, it, throws you off of your rhythm of like how you learned how to do your job. So why change the game too much? Do you, now I, I do know that like, I, and I've heard Tom Durkin say this too, is like, he's, he doesn't necessarily like memorize lines, but he thinks of things he might or might not say if a certain things happen, a certain, a certain thing happens. And if it comes out, it comes out. Right. And I think Travis is very similar. Like, I think like when, you know, one of my favorite lines Travis ever said was, was, was in the Derby that, uh, the, I think American Pharaoh's Derby, he said, frost, it's warming up or heating up or something like that. Right. That's something that he had thought about, Okay. but he didn't plan it. It just, he thought about it. And so when it happened, it came out. Do you do that? Do you, do you, do you think of things that you might want to say and, or how do you handle that situation? I can't sit here and say that I've never done that because I have, but I, I tend not to. Uh, My theory is, and my theory of race calling, is let the race tell you what it needs and then describe it. Paint the picture for the betting public. An infinite amount of things can happen. I'm simply sitting there with my binoculars, gates open, I'm calling what I see. Um, Now, I think that it's good to be spontaneous, and I think that spontaneity comes out when you are really talented at being spontaneous and knowing how to describe a race. And that's the art form of calling a race. But I would also say there are certain horses or certain angles that maybe you, you think of a line and you say, that would be funnier. That would be memorable. And you put it in the back of your head. I've tried scripting before when I was practicing races on a phone recorder. I didn't think it came out as natural as if I just set a line uh, that, 
it would come out a lot natural for me. And I think it came across to the listeners as a lot more natural. That sort of was my trial and error, but I have thought about lines over the years. If I see a horse or there's a storyline surrounding the horse that needs to, people need to pay attention to. So I wouldn't say that I've never done it, but I try to be spontaneous when I can. What's the best Italian food in, in hot springs? I saw, I saw somewhere that you like Italian food. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because, uh, DeLuca everybody talks about it. It, it definitely meets the hype. Anthony, who, who's the owner is an amazing chef as people do a great job. I'm a big DeLuca's fan. I think their Italian food tastes just like Italy. I've been to Italy. It tastes just like Italy's food. Very, very good. Uh, there's another restaurant called Via Roma Italian Restaurant in Hot Springs that you also have to attend. Those are my top two. DeLuca's has more of a uh, American uh, bar vibe to it, and it's lively. Via Roma is more relaxed Italian, uh, candles are lit type of deal. So Via Roma and DeLuca's, if you have two days here, for example— and you want to go to two Italian places, those are the two I would recommend. I have a funny DeLuca story. I've never told anyone before. Um, so, you know, the Mirror Man, Frank Miramati is like the pizza god, right? I mean, I know most people think it's Dave Portnoy, but it might be it might be, uh, might be Miramati. <laughs> I think it's Frank. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the man was going through like, I mean, he said it on our podcast, so I'm not putting this out. He was going through a battle with like, with with like cancer uh of the like of the uh diet you know of the um you know of the i think it was I think it was colon cancer right so he's like going through this situation and what what you eat matters and he was eating pizza like the entire time <laughs> doing this process he's a pizza guy right one time i was in monmouth and he sent pizza to my hotel room like he's like do not order pizza i'm sending you pizza right now don't do anything don't move <laughs> So he sent, he tells me to go to DeLuca's the first time I ever go to, to Hot Springs. And I was there for, for America's Day at the races. And he goes, all right. I was like, all right, Frank. So I, I didn't know what it was like. Do I just walk in and say hello? Do I, what do I do? I don't, you know, whatever. It was pretty busy. He goes, walk right in the kitchen, say, where's Anthony? Look him in the eyes and tell him the fat man sent me. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Frank, I'm not going into this man's restaurant, walking into the kitchen, <laughs> asking for him and then saying the fat man sent me. <laughs> and so he goes, no, trust me, trust me, just do it, just do it. And I was like, ah, oh, damn. So I, I, I get there, I walk in and I'm like, I was, I did the, the softest version pause. I was like, um, I'm, uh, hi. Um, I didn't walk into the kitchen. I like stepped to the threshold. I was like, is, uh, is Anthony here? Right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, the, the, the fat man sent me. And you're right. It was delicious. It was a, it was a great experience, a very cool place. Uh, I enjoyed it very much, and and yes, it's 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 very highly recommended to uh, to to go to Deluca's. That's that's the only that's the first place I would go uh, in Hot Springs. Did Ant did Anthony know what you meant when you said the fat guy sent you? Did he know exactly what you meant? He did. He did. <laughs> he he looked at me for like a half a second, and then his eyes lit up, and he knew that I was talking <laughs> about the mirror. And there's man. there but and the, Mirror Man's got a uh, pizza named after him there now, Jonathan. Mm. He's only a cheese. He's a cheese pizza guy, right? Yeah. So what is what's on the what's on the what's on the pizza? I'm, I think it's just a cheese style pizza named after Frank. Of course, he he. Uh, where was I? I talked to him. I'm about pulling up the menu time. right now. Oh, I told him that I was going to. Uh, so my my wife's family is from New Haven, Connecticut. Obviously, a very big pizza capital of the world. And I was telling him that we went to Pepe's and got bacon pizza and he was mad at me because the bacon pizza is the best pizza i've ever had in my life at peppy's in new haven connecticut bacon pizza but he got so angry at me for getting bacon he's like no no cheese just cheese nothing else just cheese cheese only yeah frankie's flatbush it's called <laughs> it's named after frank miramani himself that's amazing. Plain cheese pizza. We use exceptional cheeses with homemade tomato sauce, extra virgin olive oil, fresh basil, and Parmigiano Reggiano. Yummy. Look at that. Look <laughs> at that. Uh, I got to hear about this rubber duck thing. Yeah. You got to tell me about this. It's good that people know the story because when they first see it, they're like, what the heck's going on here? 
And once you explain it to people, they go, wow, that's really cool. So when I was at Emerald Downs, I would go bowling with some friends and I wasn't much of a bowler, really. None of us were, but we would go once a week as something to do and we'd have a good time. I needed a ride to the bowling alley. I think my car was getting an oil change or something. So I asked my buddy to drive me there and he had a Volkswagen at the time and he had these three or four rubber ducks on his Volkswagen dashboard. And I said, what is, what is this? And he goes, well, they're rubber ducks, Matt. And I said, yeah, but why do you have them? He goes, well, we got them at the bowling alley over here. So next to the front desk, they have this machine where you put a dollar in, you know, four quarters and you get the claw and it goes down and it picks up a duck. So you can keep doing it until you get a duck. So even if you miss 20 times, you're still going to be able to keep doing it until you get one. So over the time I was going to the bowling alley every week, I probably got about 20, 25 of these things. It got really out of control and I had all of them at home. And I said, what am I going to do with these rubber ducks? This is ridiculous. I mean, I'm a, I'm a 24 year old guy crying out loud. (laughs) I don't need any rubber ducks. So my announcer's booth was really plain at the time. And I had heard from other announcers, they would put different things that meant things to them in the announcer's booth. And I said, you know what? I'm going to just spice this booth out. I'm going to spice it up and I'm going to put these ducks in the announcer's booth. So I took a picture of the ducks and I'm like, hey, my new buddies are here with me in the announcer's booth as a joke and posted it to social media. And next thing you know, I've got fans all over the world sending me rubber ducks. And I've had this collection for probably six years now. I think it was my third year I was at Emerald that I got these rubber ducks. And probably what, well, six, seven years I've had this collection and it's grown to over 250. I think I've got 254 of them in the announcer's booth. And I would say over 220 of them were sent to me by people, fans all over the world, Jonathan. That's outstanding. Yeah, that's the story. <laughs> so, all right, yeah, just I'll just check it in. I was, you know, it's you know, like you said, it's it's a it's a it's a situation that deserves a story. Yeah, I mean, I France, Ireland, I've gotten like across the pond. It's incredible, and it, it reminds me to be professional at all times because people are paying attention and people care, and it also teaches me and has reminded me that we as a racing community are a tight knit community and there are people all over the place that are interested in our racing. And we can say the same thing here about other places, no matter where they're at. So um, it's been really a cool thing. And it's amazing because there are so many different themed ducks. You, You wouldn't imagine how many rubber ducks there are that have different things. And sometimes, you know, Jason Milligan, who's, uh, you know, a big figure here at at Oakland, he's the director of racing here essentially, and does a lot of operations stuff, head operations here, but he'll, he'll like, you know, come up to the booth and give me a package, be like, you know what this is. And it's a duck (laughs) just up from some random person somewhere sending me a duck in the mail happens all the time. You know, so I'm going to tell the marketing team at Oakland, you guys got to do a Matt Dinnerman duck giveaway. You know, they have the bobbleheads. You got to do a rubber duck. And then put a saddle, like a saddle towel on the duck and like do a duck giveaway. That's a good idea. That is a great idea. And yeah, sell them in the gift shop. I bet you people will be all over saying. it. All over. You can sign them too. Let's just, let's get your signature on them. I'm down for that. I got markers. <laughs> Before I let you go, your, your, your favorite race call of yours of all time. And then your favorite race call of someone else's of all time, whichever order you you prefer. That's a that's it's a good question. Um, you know, I've got sort of a random best call of all time, which a lot of people probably wouldn't say, but there's just something about this call. I can't even tell you what it is. It was the way the words were used, his tone of voice, and unfortunately, it was a heartbreaking loss. But it was when, um real quiet lost the Belmont stakes and Dave Johnson called that race. There was something about the way he described it. And and it, to me, I get goosebumps every time I listen to that race call. And I can't tell you why it is because it wasn't like he said anything that was super special or it was just the way he called the race and the tone he had and the excitement of real quiet's almost there. And here comes 
Victory Gallup and Gary Stevens, and it's real quiet in DeSormo, but on the outside, I, I still I still get goosebumps just talking about it. It's just the way he called it that I love that race call. Um, my favorite call I've probably ever had was Morning Addiction's race call when she was three ahead at the three ace pole, stopped running, dropped to the back of the pack, and ended up winning. That went all over the world. But it wasn't because of uh, the fact that it went all over the world that I liked it. I liked it because I thought I did my job properly, and I thought, really, that was a call where I listened to it back. And when I took off the headset, I wasn't expecting to get any praise whatsoever. I was just calling the race, and I got a good chunk of praise. And I ended up listening back, and I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I've come a long way in my race calling journeys because early in my career, I probably couldn't have done that. I wouldn't have known what to do. I would have messed up here. I called what I see, what I saw, and I painted the picture and didn't make it about me, made it about the race, which is what you're trying to achieve. And just describe what was going on in an accurate fashion. And the call people thought was memorable. And I did my job and it sort of really showed, wow, I have come a long way. So uh, those are two noteworthy calls, both of mine and also of Dave's. Matt, it's 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 been a fun journey watching you, right? I mean, I, I think as a, as a and I'm sure you've done this before. Maybe you haven't. I definitely have. Where I do the air quotes for being racing young. You're definitely younger than I am uh, in real life too. But I'd like to do racing young and air quotes. And to see someone who's racing young, you're actually really young, uh, to have the success that you're having and and to. To get to a job, and, and no offense to Emerald Downs or to Golden Gate, um, but I think if you just look at it, you know, you can look at it from a purse structure standpoint if you have to, to make it the math not hurt anyone's feelings. You, you found yourself in a position that is a forever job if you so choose it to be, right? Oaklawn Park is a forever job. It could be your last job and it wouldn't be out, it wouldn't be the craziest thing in the world to be at a place like that and, and, and to find that at your age. Um, is something I think you should be very proud of. And, and uh, like I said, as, as, a, as a quote-unquote young and racing guy, I, I'm, I'm proud of you as well. Well, I appreciate that. And thank you, Jonathan. I think, I think that, you know, at this age, what I've been able to accomplish, it's surprised me really. And I always say at the end of every race day, keep living the dream, folks, good night. And not everybody is living the dream, so to speak. And there are days where I'm not living the dream. You know, nobody's life is perfect, but it goes to show if, if you work really hard and yeah, you know, I'm lucky. I've had a lot of help along the way and people that have been very supportive and helpful and has given me great guidance. Uh, and, and that's, that's as big of a deal as anything when it comes to doing what you want to do in life and being successful at it. But if you work really hard and have a good attitude and treat people the right way, then I think things work out for you. And, and that's what I try to do every day. So, I mean, when you wait, I know you know this, Jonathan, because you love what you do. When you wake up every day and you're excited to go to work and it doesn't feel like work, it feels like you're having just having fun. You're getting paid to have fun. It's it's a lovely thing. I completely agree. And I just want to tell you that mm. before we go for this Rebel this weekend, yeah. I know you know this, mm-hmm. there is other Justin Timberlake songs besides <laughs> I'm Bringing Sexy Back. I just wanted just to tell you that. Right. Take take it take it where you need to take it. Right. I just wanted you to just to think about that. I could turn this into the one, if he wins one of the corniest race calls in the history of racing, potentially. <laughs> <laughs> We're rooting for right. it. We're rooting I know for you're it. rooting for it. I know that. <laughs> Matt, I appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck, to, uh, luck this weekend, and uh, we'll uh, maybe we'll catch up be, uh, before the Arkansas Derby. We will, absolutely, Jonathan. Good to chat with you, buddy. Thanks for having me. Ah, uh, Matt, that was fun. Yeah, look, I mean, look, I, I wasn't judging you when 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 I heard about the 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 duck thing. It, look, I, it's cool. I, I like people with collections. I think I think I wish I had an obscure collection. Um, you know, I think it'd just be something fun when you're in the airport. Oh, damn, I forgot to get a whatever it is. Oh, man, I was in town. I forgot to grab a, I don't know. But I think it would be fun to say, oh, man, I forgot to grab a rubber ducky. And I, I it sounds like your collection is growing from people sending them to you. But, I'm, you know, I still think you should buy a good rubber ducky when you see one. I've never said rubber ducky so much in a 10-minute span in my entire life. I want to thank our friends at Qatar Racing. 
uh, for all of their support. Thank you to Sheikh Fahad. Thank you to the Clara and Gold. And look, let's uh, let's root our man Matt home in this Rebel. Matt, we wish you the best of luck. Have the best call of your career. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for all the support. Make sure you're following, retweeting. Uh, make sure you check all the stuff we're doing on YouTube. Comment there. Like all of that. I'm trying to grow the YouTube, YouTube channel a little bit, so we'd appreciate the support there. And uh, until next week, well, not next week. Is, that, is it next week? Yeah, well, I'll see you next week. If I, I think I'll see you next week. What's going on next week? Hold on, let's think about it. Yeah, it's Fountain of Youth. I'll see you next week. Thanks. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where? I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche. There's five and a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver.